trust but verify. A quote made famous by President Ronald Reagan in 1987, connected to diplomacy with the U.S. and Russia at the time. For addiction treatment, we also trust but verify, using the world of drug and alcohol testing. On this episode of Through the Trees, we sit down with Kerry Schwartz, clinical pharmacist at the University of Colorado and Cedar. She's going to help us better understand this unique world of drug and alcohol testing. Addiction treatment healthcare is vast territory, much of it having yet to be fully charted. It also is a field with some of the most passionate and interesting of clinicians. Each week, we walk the addiction treatment trails, learning from experts of all backgrounds and specialties. My name is Pat Failing, and I'm an addiction psychiatrist for Cedar in the University of Colorado. You're listening to Through the Trees, the Cedar Addiction Treatment Podcast. So this is Dr. Pat Failing. Today, I'm very happy to sit down with Kerry Schwartz. Kerry is a clinical pharmacist for the University in Cedar, and we're talking about some pretty scientifically rigorous topics today, but I think are very pertinent for addiction treatment, which is the role of testing. So specifically, drug testing, uh, urine drug screens, how this works with the law, some of the science behind this. So, uh, Kiri, thank you for sitting down with me. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here and have this conversation with you. Kiri, uh, tell us a little of your background. Why, how did you get uh, expertise in this kind of hyper-specialized topic of uh, drug screen testing? Yeah, so I'm a pharmacist, and I learned... Here early on in my training, pharmacists are the chemists of the healthcare team. And so a lot of drug testing is a lot of chemistry. It's a lot of understanding where medications or drugs end up in your body and how you detect them. So how did I get specifically involved in this was I used to work at a laboratory where I provided what we call expanded interpretation of high complexity testing. So I'd get these long reports of results of drug testing and I'd try to match it with the clinical picture of the patient. So providers would call and say, I have this patient on these medications with this diagnosis and I have these analytes or these results in their urine or even their oral fluids, help me put this together. You're the expert in pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics and available medications. Does this make sense with what this patient presents with and what they're telling me? How can you explain these results in the clinical context of my patient? So that is where my experience comes from, and I apply it now to my position here at Cedar. So it sounds like you were kind of a, almost like a specialized consultant within healthcare to like, uh, I don't know, gain greater information or more precise information for what was going on with patients? Correct. Um, You know, my job is to look at the clinical situation, 
look at the evidence from the drug testing and say, well, what does explain the results and what doesn't explain these results to help the clinician piece things together to move forward and formulate an appropriate treatment plan for the patient. Okay, well, very good. Teach me a little about advanced drug testing. What, what would I want to know as a clinician if you, were, if you were educating me? Where would you start? I always start with terminology. So let's everybody get on the same page, right? So we have screens and we have confirmatory testing, right? So let's stick with urine because that's the easiest place to start, right? I know we we have many patients, they're going to have to drop a urine screen or do, sometimes we'll say a UA. Mm -hmm. I know UA is kind of slang for a urine drug screen. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. So most of the time when people say, I've got to drop a urine, that means they're doing a urine drug screen. Okay. So what they do is they provide a urine specimen in a cup, and that cup is actually a couple minutes later provides results right there in the office. So the great thing about it is it's relatively inexpensive. It's relatively fast. You get a preliminary answer that kind of starts the conversation. You can look at the cup. As a clinician, you can look at the patient and say, yeah, the results from this cup match what I would expect based on this patient's history and clinical presentation. Okay, so that is a urine, when you say a urine screen, Mm -hmm. that's what you're talking about. Correct. Okay. Or you could, as a clinician, you could look at the results and say, this doesn't make sense. This person wasn't supposed to pop positive. I need to have a conversation with this person or potentially do some more testing, right? Okay. Like the, the, uh, their urine screen said that they had cocaine in their urine and the person strongly denies that I've never used cocaine. Correct. Okay. All right. Then you might go on to do confirmatory testing, right? So you've got this, we would call it an unexplained positive result, or the patient's disputing the result. You as a clinician may have the option of sending it off for more high complexity, excuse me, confirmatory testing. The difference between the two is the testing methodology. So screens use something that is, it's an, we call it an amino assay, right? That's a really fancy way of saying it's like a lock and key mechanism, right? So the, the drug test is looking for a certain part of a drug molecule to turn positive. So you think of the drug as kind of a key and the test is actually a lock. Okay. Does the key fit the lock? If it does, the test shows positive, right? Okay, makes sense. If it doesn't fit, it could show negative. So you, this speaks to some of the limitations of the screens that we do. It's not for the most part, it's not specific to one molecule. So maybe it's testing for a certain class of molecules. And maybe it only gets part, the lock only 
looks for part of the chemical or part of the molecule and not the whole thing. So that's where you can get false positives and false negatives with drug screens. Again, it's a rapid technology to kind of get the conversation started, but screens are just that. They're screens, they're not confirmatory testing. So a lot of providers or clinicians will say, this result just doesn't make sense. You know, something's not right. And they have the option of doing high complexity testing where you take that same urine specimen that was given and you send it off to a laboratory and then they do chromatography and spectrometry and they actually have a laboratory scientist go through and read the output or the data that the machine, the test gives them to not only tell you if it's positive or negative, but they give you a number or a concentration. That is the definitive answer. So that's why we really want to make a distinction between doing the initial screen that's a lesser technology that just kind of tests for a class or just looking for part of a molecule as opposed to the high complexity confirmatory testing that is the end all be all. Okay. And so I'm imagining there's a big difference in cost for mm -hmm. these. What's the range? Like what is, for instance, a a screen test, what does that tend to cost a healthcare center compared to a large-scale confirmatory test? What does that tend to, tend to cost? You know, it's a wide range, but I'll say the difference is exponential, right? You're talking dollars probably for just a drug screen. It's really the cost of acquiring the cup, Okay. but the cost is in is exponentially more for high complexity testing like that could be many hundreds of dollars could be for that could be okay. obviously pat there are a lot of factors involved um what your insurance coverage is um what your provider's relationship is with the laboratory um it also depends on the number of tests that you as a clinician want to order, right? That affects the cost of the testing. You know, one other thing that is different is that high complexity testing takes a long time compared to a drug screen, right? Like I said, a drug screen comes back in a couple of minutes. High complexity testing has to be sent off to a laboratory and takes a couple of days. Okay. Now, is there a difference between testing that might be used for clinical reasons compared to workplace reasons? Like, let's say you're getting hired for a job and you're asked to do a urine drug screen as part of starting that job. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, see, that's a great question. So clinical testing is distinct from workplace testing. Having said that, the roots of clinical testing lie in workplace testing. So the technology for workplace drug testing has been around for 50 to 60 years. It was actually operationalized by the U.S. military, and things became formalized by the U.S. government in the late 1980s with the advent of drug-free workplaces. So the point of workplace drug testing is to make it a safe place, right? We want a sure. safe workplace, right? 
And by far the most workplace drug testing is done in industries regulated by the Department of Transportation. So you may be up with a, a private employee or a private company, but it's regulated by the DOT. They by far do the most workplace drug testing. So pilots and truck drivers and people like that. So workplace testing, the laboratories have different certification. The labs are done with different what we call cutoffs. So the cutoffs are specified by the government. What's a cutoff? A cutoff determines the level that makes your result negative versus positive. Okay, the threshold. Exactly. Exactly. Those are set by the government and strictly enforced. Workplace testing has something called chain of custody where um, specimens when donated, they're witnessed, and every person who handles that specimen has to sign off on it. Okay. Um, specimens are reviewed by someone called a medical review officer. It's a physician who undergoes additional training specialized in the interpretation of workplace drug testing. Also for workplace drug testing, there's a strict menu. So they test for opioids, amphetamines, marijuana, and PCP. They have a strict menu. It's called their five analytes. It's called the SAMHSA-5 or the NIDA-5, National Institutes of Drug Abuse, and SAMHSA. So they, and SAMHSA regulates those laboratories and the analytes they test for and the cutoffs they use are set by SAMHSA or the government. Okay. Okay. So that is very different from clinical testing, right? Clinical testing, wide variety of menus. We don't have to adhere to chain of custody. Clinical laboratories and providers absolutely try to match the specimen with the patient as best we can, but there's no requirement for a legal chain of custody. Cutoffs can change with clinical laboratories. Many laboratories change their cutoffs based on emerging literature, feedback from providers or clients. They don't have to keep to a strict government standard. So are, the, are cutoffs for workplace testing similar to criminal justice cutoffs, or are those very different? They can be very different, oh, right? Okay. So one other, um, you know, important difference is in terms of, you know, clinical testing, you know, workplace testing is the donation is usually always witnessed, right? Or it's in a special bathroom or something like that. That may not always be the case with clinical testing as well. Um, But I I think one important thing is that the menu for clinical testing really depends on what the provider thinks is medically necessary, whereas the analytes that you can test for in workplace testing are dictated strictly by the government. Okay. So uh, I know what you were saying about screening versus confirmatory testing. Will those principles be applied in a workplace too? So if you were to uh, have a urine screen that was disputed, would it get sent for confirmatory testing in a lab? In workplace testing, positives are confirmed. Okay. Yes. And then reviewed by a medical review officer. 
whereas in clinical testing, it's up to the physician or provider's discretion if they want to do confirmatory testing. Sure. Yeah, because the, in, in a clinical sense, it's in the patient's best interest. So we would want to determine what we would do with the information we acquired. Like if we, but I guess with the workplace, the stakes could be quite high. Somebody could lose their job if they were confirmed positive or something like that. Right. As clinicians, in order to appropriately treat the patient, you need to know everything that's there. Well, it makes sense. So we started talking about, I think, one of the more common forms of testing, which is urine drug screen testing. Now, I know we have some others as well. What are some of the other used forms of of tests? Sure. So urine is the one that everybody talks about. It's the one that's been around for the longest. And by the way, just going back for a second, workplace testing only uses urine. Oh, okay. So that's good to know. Okay. However, clinical testing and forensic testing use different matrices. What do I mean by matrices? I mean, what is the specimen? Urine, hair, oral fluid, sweat, breath, or meconium, baby's first stool. So in in clinical testing, what I see the most is, or in blood actually, what we see the most is urine, right, for substance use disorders, but we've also started to see oral fluids. And there is discussion of the federal government doing oral fluid testing for workplace testing, but right now it's just discussion. Um, So clinicians use oral fluid testing as well. Other things that you might, other matrices that you might see are blood or hair. They all have kind of their pros and cons, right? So urine's been around for the longest, and we have the most data about urine. People are the most comfortable with urine. It's probably the easiest to collect unless you're doing some sort of witnessed collection or something like that. Um, It's not invasive, um, but there are times when urine can't be used. Maybe somebody um, is on dialysis and they can't make urine or somebody's got a shy bladder or for whatever reason um, they can't provide urine. Maybe you're in a facility where they do witness collections and there's not somebody there to witness the collection. So oral fluid has become an option that a lot of a lot of um, clinicians are are turning to in certain situations. Oral fluid, um, we have less experience with it, and it has a different chemical and physical properties. So the interpretation of oral fluids is very different from urine. Um, Things show up in different concentrations, in different ratios. There's a different testing menu. There's not as many tests that have been validated for oral fluid as compared with urine. Um, Sometimes oral fluid is more expensive. It's just a newer technology. Um, The nice thing about oral fluids, I think from a clinician's perspective is it's always 
you can observe it no matter what, right? So there's a nice little collection tool. That's like a test tube and you take, almost looks like a spatula and you take it out and um, the person sits there with it in their mouth for a couple of minutes and then you put it back in the collection tube and you send it off to the laboratory. Um, certain things show up better in oral fluids certain things show up better in urine. Oral fluid tends to be a better reflection of what is going on in your body right now. We almost say it's a good proxy for your blood. Urine gives a little bit more history. Things take a little bit more time to get into urine than they do blood and oral fluid. So we tend to think of oral fluid as having something, a shorter window of detection, right? Okay generally speaking. Let's talk a little bit about hair. Sure. Um, yep. Sometimes, yeah, I know sometimes we'll have people come in and they're asked to do a, a hair follicle test where we, we and they, they pull up a, a large wad of hair, right? Yeah. So hair, um, unlike urine and oral fluid, hair is very technique dependent, right? Um, to be very, you have to pull a certain amount of it. You have to make sure you get the follicle, that it's handled correctly. Um, hair gives a lot more history than urine and oral fluid, right? Um, with some exceptions, you know, oral fluid and urine maybe only tell a couple of days or weeks of the story. Depending on how long your hair is, you could be looking at months of the story for hair. Problem with hair is that there's a lot more interperson variability. If you have short hair versus long hair, if you um, color your hair, um, you know there's a lot of um, a lot of variation from person to person, and the collection is very technique dependent. Um, the other thing about hair is it takes a while for things to get into hair. Something will show up in urine and oral fluids, potentially within just a couple of hours. Hair, sometimes it can take days or even longer. Some sources, depending on the analyte, say a week or two before you can actually see something in hair. So, you know, situations come up where somebody might pop positive, as they say, on a drug screen, and they'll go and get a hair test and say, your test is wrong. That's not showing up in my hair. What are you trying to pull? Well, the answer is that really both tests are correct. The, the Whatever they were tested for was able to get into urine because they did it very recently. It just hasn't shown up in their hair yet. Mm, okay. So. okay. So it's important to know we have, of these three distinctions, oral fluid, urine screen, and then hair follicle testing, they're different in terms of length of time. It sounds mm -hmm. like the, you mentioned, so the oral fluid is most in line with the very here and now. Like mm -hmm. Almost like a snapshot of somebody's blood. Urine screen is pretty close to now. And then hair is a, a little bit of yesterday, but it also has the capacity to go back quite a ways. Mm -hmm. A month or a couple months? or Exactly, depending on the length of your hair. Okay. Hair gives more history. Okay. And there are other things that people test for. Blood that's very invasive and involves a lot of regulatory issues, right? When you're handling blood or sure. poking someone, right? There's, I talked about babies first, stool. There's also sweat, 
breath testing that people are familiar with for alcohol testing. Um, but most of the time what we see at Cedar and at most treatment facilities, you're looking at urine and sometimes oral fluids. Sure. So you mentioned alcohol. Can you, can you expand on this? Do we have any kind of important or unique tests that are used to determine if somebody's been drinking or not? So it's a, yes, we do. There's lots of um, ways to monitor for abstinence from ethanol or alcohol use. Certainly everybody's familiar with the breathalyzer and blood alcohol testing. But in our world here, where we're wanting to look at more history and go back a little bit further, urine testing offers a couple of different options. You can test for ethanol and you can test for ethanol what we call biomarkers or metabolites of ethanol that are a little bit more stable and stay around a little bit longer they're called ethyl glucuronide i'm going to say etg and ethyl sulfate ets you can test for alcohol in somebody's breath and in their blood and in their urine when we do urine testing urine ethanol testing is not all that reliable. Um, you can see, you know, if your urine sits around too long, if you have uncontrolled diabetes or certain other factors, you can you can see ethanol in the presence of urine of somebody who didn't have anything to drink. Ethanol also has a very short window of detection in urine. You're only looking at 10 to 12 hours. So instead, science has pointed us in the direction of looking at this ETG and ETS. They're around for up to 80 hours. Okay, 80 right? hours. So three and a half days. Yeah, so. just okay. over three right. days. So if you see ETG and ETS in someone's urine, you can say that it's likely that that person has consumed alcohol recently. There's also a new blood test called PEF. It's phosphatidylethanol and it's around for two to four weeks mm, okay and it's and path is generated only in the presence of ethanol by enzymes phospholipase d is what it's called so phospholipases and they the this path is generated by that enzyme in the presence of alcohol and has a very long what we call half-life okay stays around for a while so you might see peth in the serum or blood of somebody for two to four weeks after they have been consuming ethanol okay so that test is again something that we're getting more and more evidence on but we're starting to to see it done more often to monitor abstinence from ethanol. Okay. Very promising. It's, so, it's, it's sensitive and specific, right? So sensitive for testing means if something is there, you're going to detect it. Specific or specificity means if something is not there, you get a negative result. So the ideal test is both sensitive gets a positive result when something's there and specific gets a negative result when something's not there. Okay. 
Okay, so I'm, I'm getting the sense in, in, in Kyria, in us talking about this, is we pay a lot of attention to time, so the length of time, mm -hmm. and what the person, or the, either the clinician or the courts or whatever, is going to want to know. Uh, like there's a difference between what's what's gone in somebody's body in the last month compared to the last week compared to the last day breathalyzers for alcohol are just the immediacy and that does make sense of why that would be for an active DUI I mean you, you want to demonstrate that somebody has alcohol in their system as we speak not necessarily are they in recovery or not so. Yeah, and you know, alcohol is very complicated. Alcohol metabolism depends on gender and liver function and hydration status and weight and age. It's very complicated, and the interpretation of alcohol tests can be very, very difficult. So that's why there's a lot of them, and sure. they're used for different purposes. Okay. Right. Experience the compassionate care of CEDAR, the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation. Located at the University of Colorado Hospital, we manage complex health needs in addition to addiction. To learn more, visit cedarcolorado.org. Well, very good. So, Kiri, are there any common myths or misconceptions that we find in this world of drug screen testing or any of this? Yeah, so... Um couple of them come to mind. One is, well, if I dump bleach in my urine, it'll make it'll scrub it clean. For sure. So people <laughs> people doctoring their their sample. Right, exactly. So you think you know, somebody thinks that they're gonna quote unquote pop positive for something. Well if I just put a little bit of soap or bleach or, you know, one of these products sold at health stores on that golden seal i think is one of them that's popular um that you'll be able to add that to your urine and it's going to scrub it clean so definitely not on high complexity testing if your provider or your doctor or clinician sends your urine for confirmation not only is the analyte the what you pop positive for still going to be there but usually something called specimen validity testing is done and where they perform tests to see if the urine has been adulterated and tampered with. Okay. So not only are they going to detect what someone was trying to cover up, they're also going to be able to tell that the specimen was messed with. Okay, so you could be in magnified trouble for, um, for fraudulently doing the test. Yeah, well, you know, fraudulent is more for forensic legal workplace testing, but basically sure. your okay. doctor is going to know, oh, it looks like something was added to the specimen, Okay. right? And people try, you know, Mountain Dew or lemonade or apple juice or whatever, that is going to show up on confirmatory on the high complexity testing. So like what about the world of like cleanse kits like that people could drink something before they have to do a drug screen do those do those make a difference? So generally what happens with those a lot of those have the instructions of drink a lot of water with this or take this with a bunch of water. If you drink a lot of water Again, on that confirmatory high complexity testing, 
it's going to show up as it'll say, oh, the specimens dilute. So interpret these results within the context of this urine is dilute than most normal human urine. You're, the provider is going to see that. They're going to have a conversation with you. Having said that, specimen validity testing now is not only done on confirmatory testing, they're actually urine screens. You know, we going back to the beginning of our conversation, you know, that initial urine that you quote unquote drop in the doctor's office, many of those little cups will now also test for validity. Okay. So those little strips on the side of the cup are not only drugs, they're also testing for, oh, did someone add bleach? Did someone drink a ton of water or add water to the specimen? They often test for temperature. Human urine is within a tight temperature range. Most of those cups have a temperature gauge on them. So if you bring in somebody else's urine or you add water and you didn't bring a thermometer with you to get it to the right temperature, the temperature gauge is going to show as abnormal. So Sure. Well, very interesting. Okay, what, uh, what else? What other misconceptions or pop culture myths do we find about this stuff? One thing I, I think that people like to bring up is the poppy seed defense. Mm-hmm. Okay. The poppy right, what seeds. Is this? So we all know that heroin and morphine and codeine all come from the opium poppy. They're naturally derived or opiates. It's the same poppy seeds that you get on an everything or a poppy seed bagel. And so when someone tests positive for opiates on that initial screen, people will say, oh, it's because I ate a everything bagel this morning, right? So if that's the case, what many providers will do is send it off for high-complexity confirmatory testing if the story just doesn't add up. And the high-complexity testing will tell you the exact amount, the concentration of morphine and codeine that's in the specimen. And every laboratory is different, but they have a certain cutoff or a threshold. And if it's above that, it's not poppy seeds. If it's below that, Poppy seeds, among other things, could possibly explain the result. Okay. If a specimen comes back with just these exorbitantly high levels, it's probably not poppy seeds. Poppy seeds, again, could cause a positive, a true positive for opiates, but it's at low levels. Sure. The volume of how, how much people would have to eat would be very right. large. And it's not around for very long. Sure. So... Yeah. If you say, oh, it's that everything bagel I had last month, that's not a valid explanation. Now, how about with, uh, with things like cooking and wine? I, I've had people who have been asked to do the ETG screen for, to make sure that they're not drinking alcohol, and it was positive, and then they, they cited that that was because they were cooking with wine and that's why that's why they were positive. So I don't buy that because if you cook your meals correctly, you burn off the ethanol, 
right? So ETG is not found in ethanol. It's something that your body converts ethanol to. We say it's not exogenously available. Mm, so okay. the so the only way you test positive for ETG is that if you've been exposed to, you've consumed or you've been exposed to ethanol in your body, then your body converts ethanol to ETG and that's how you test positive for it. When you make veal marsala, the cooking wine burns off in the heat of the cooking process. So you should not test positive for ETG after using cooking wine appropriately. Sure, okay. How about things like a hand sanitizer that would have alcohol products in them? Would that show positive in any way? Generally speaking, if you're using instant hand sanitizer, it's not going to explain a positive for ETG and ETS together. There's somebody, you know, there are some small studies that people who used a lot of instant hand sanitizer. You're, we're talking veterinarians, surgeons, pet store owners, daycare workers who are constantly using these products. They might see a little bit of ETG, but it, it using these appropriately, you're not going to see both ETG and ETS together. And it's actually very unusual to even see ETG. So. Sure. Kiri, this has been very interesting. I think this is very useful in breaking this all down. Do you, um, what are your thoughts for the future? Do you imagine any, any sort of things changing in the technology that is all part of this whole world of substance testing? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. Um, I think that one thing in, in the area of clinical testing that people are talking about is somehow matching the urine specimen to the actual person. So we all know they're in urine, some epithelial cells or, you know, cells from inside the bladder or the urinary tract, it's totally normal, end up in the urine. Um, And a lot of, you know, clinical places don't have the ability to do a directly observed collection where they watch the person provide the urine in the cup or have special retrofitted bathrooms to avoid urine specimen tampering. So there's talk of, you know, maybe getting a swab of the cheek or, or somehow collecting cells from the patient and then testing those cells and the cells in the urine specimen to make sure that they are from the same person. Oh, sure. Well, make sure there's no, absolutely no mix up and nobody can say, oh, you mixed up my urine with my girlfriend's or you mixed up my urine with the person who is in line behind me, right? Your genetics. I mean, unless they're your identical twin, right? That's going to be your specimen. So sure. I think that's something that's, that's being looked into. So. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. Almost like a like a two-factor authentication that we see these days with our phones and our bank accounts and things like that. Yes, exactly. Well, very good. The, um, Kira, do you have any uh, final thoughts for our listeners as part of our podcast? You know, drug testing specifically, urine drug testing, and clinical areas are just one tool 
in the toolkit and no tool is perfect. So it's always important that you and your clinician or your provider talk about the results, right? Drug testing is in clinical practice is not meant to be punitive. It's just like getting a blood sugar or a blood pressure or a heart rate. It's part of the exam that the physician does to make sure everybody is healthy and safe. It should not be made to feel in any way as a punishment. Like I said, it's just another tool in the toolkit to help protect you. Sure, to help people reach their goals of recovery. And that does involve themes of accountability and verifying like what's all going on. And I think on, on this podcast, it sounds like we have a whole bunch of different tools that are available. We've got drug screen, confirmatory testing, you mentioned PEF testing, oral fluid, hair follicle sampling, ETG testing, ETS testing. I'm sure there's even plenty more. And then even some of the real advanced scientific verification methods that are going to be coming. Um, so very fascinating. There's a, there's a lot to this. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Sure. Well, thank you so much, Carrie. So this is, uh, uh, I'm Pat Failing and uh, one of the addiction psychiatrists here at Cedar. This is our Through the Trees podcast, joined by Carrie Schwartz, who is a clinical pharmacist who works uh, on our team, and we're, we're very lucky to have her for this. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Through the Trees, the Cedar Addiction Treatment Podcast. Please visit cedarcolorado.org for a wide array of educational content about the disease of addiction and the science of recovery. If you or a loved one are considering CEDAR and the University of Colorado Hospital for treatment, please speak with our admissions team at 720-848-3000. CEDAR, the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation, helping people build a life of recovery.